You're listening to Columbia Radio News. It's December 12th. I'm Ilika Mahajan. And I'm Leanne Herter. It's that time of year. Buyers are looking to score deals on gaming consoles, but they're hard to find. An expert from The Verge explains why and shares some of the latest holiday tech deals. And with the holidays comes travel season. Why some Americans are still heading home despite the pandemic. I understand that the safer thing to do would be to just stay home and not travel, but I haven't seen my parents and uh, now is uh, the best time. When someone says essential worker, you might not picture doormen, but their job doesn't allow for social distancing. How are they doing during the pandemic? Still, you know, because uh, you don't know where you're coming in and you don't know if any people in the building have the uh, COVID. And a reporter at the MIT Technology Review explains why everyone should pay attention to the field of ethical artificial intelligence research. All those stories and more on the show today. But first, here's the local news. For Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Tori Lutz. Governor Cuomo is suspending indoor dining in New York City again as COVID-19 cases continue to rise. Cuomo says the ban will start Monday, and many restaurant owners are concerned about whether shutting indoor dining again will mean their businesses fail. One of the casualties is the iconic Prohibitionist-era 21 Club. The 90-year-old establishment in Midtown is known for its 21 jockey statues lining the entrance and for hosting famous customers like Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Frank Sinatra, and most U.S. presidents since FDR. The company says it's looking for sustainable options that will keep the restaurant open in the long term, but for now has no concrete plans. The 21 Club closed in March, laying off 148 employees. Six people are injured after a vehicle plowed into a New York City protest yesterday. The march began in Times Square to draw attention to an ongoing hunger strike by immigrant detainees in New Jersey. The car drove through the crowd of about 50 while they were in the street at 39th Street and 3rd Avenue. Officials say that the injuries do not appear to be life-threatening and the victims are expected to recover. The suspect has been identified as 52-year-old Kathleen Casillo, who is charged with reckless endangerment. Her motive is still unclear. Heavy snow may be coming to our region next week. Forecasters say the storm could hit New York City on Wednesday. John Murray is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. There is potential for a significant amount of rain and snow. Uh, it'll have the potential to bring strong winds as well and, and some coastal flooding. You know, just be prepared uh, like every winter season, just with your uh, you know heavier winter coats and shovels in case it snows. But we won't be seeing any of that snow today. Right now, it's 49 degrees. We're looking at a high of 54 and a low of 49 with a 50% chance of rain, mostly before the evening. Tori Lutz, Columbia Radio News. Thanks, Tori. That snowstorm might put you in the mood for holiday gift shopping if you still have some folks left on your list. Verge writer Cameron Faulkner joins us through Zoom to give us the scoop on some good tech deals. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me. What was Black Friday and Cyber Monday like this year, and how is it different from years past? Well, it's always just sort of like a, a rush to get everything together for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Um, you know, it involves talking with all of the major retailers, Walmart, Amazon, Best Buy, Target, what have you, getting all the details that we can, um, sorting through all of them, the good, bad, and the ugly, <laughs> and uh, figuring out what deals matter for people, especially this season. Uh, everyone's working from home all the time. Um, most of the, most of the technology that people want, they probably already bought from themselves just out of necessity. So 
it was it was intense. Um, usually we're telling giving people as much information as we can about, you know, where they can be in person as well as shopping online. But this year we were really suggesting that people do all of their shopping online just uh, just to stay safe and to stay a little bit more sane. What's on the wish list this year, our must-have tech of 2020? There is quite a bit. So um, wireless noise-canceling headphones have been extremely popular for our audience, uh, specifically the Sony WH-1000XM3, which, or sorry, XM4, the newest model, which is like definitely a mouthful. Um, the, that model has seen its lowest price during Black Friday, and it might get a little bit lower in the lead-up to the holidays. I'm not sure about that. Uh, AirPods Pro are always popular. Um, the The price for those keeps dropping, and uh, that's great to see. Our readers really have uh, jumped on that deal several times. Um, video games in general are cheaper than ever. Some of them are cheaper than ever. Um, a lot of people might be hoping to find deals on the PS5 or the Xbox Series X consoles, but those are nowhere in sight. <laughs> um, we'll have to wait a few more months for those, unfortunately, to even return to like store shelves, virtual or otherwise. Yeah. So I have to ask: Do you have a PlayStation Five? I do not, and uh, it's it's become something that a lot of my colleagues make fun of. Not just me, but like a few of the other colleagues that I have who uh, join the online queue on uh, Sony's website to get in line. And by the time any of us jump in, because we're not bots, <laughs> we're, you know, placed like 2,000th in line or something like that. There's there's no chance for us right now, unfortunately. It's hopeless. So why is it so hard? Is it just so many people want the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox X? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, there's there was a huge drum up of interest for it. Um, the, the news cycle lasted for like a year. Anticipation is just like really intense for them. Uh, it's been several years also since the last console came out. I think people are ready to jump on it. And I think, you know, people are just at home and they want something to do. They got some money to spend and they just want the latest thing to distract themselves from all of the horrible news in the world, um, myself included. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, they just can't make them fast enough right now, unfortunately. So you talked about our headphones being something that a lot of people were keen to get their hands on. Apple just unveiled its AirPod Max at $549. Do you think it's worth it? Uh, I can't speak personally to that. I know a few of my colleagues have tried it. Um, the Verge Editor-in-Chief, Nilay Patel, put up a first look um, just a few days ago. And um, it's, it's really tricky to judge the experience when you realize how much a thing costs because your expectations really go up with it. So it's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be hard for a lot of people to get a sense of like, is this immediately worth $549 to me? But color me interested for sure. I'd like to try them. Me too. <laughs> PlayStation and Xbox have their new gaming system, but the Nintendo Switch hasn't changed gaming systems since 2016. And yet the price is still the same. Why is that? And uh, how can we find good deals on the Switch? Well, I mean, the simple answer as to why the price hasn't changed is because it's been incredibly popular. They just keep breaking record after record uh, internally at Nintendo. And I believe just as as a whole in the video game industry, they're just breaking record after record. Um, a lot of the deals are kind of interesting with the Switch. Uh, it's been really hard to find in stock during the pandemic, even though the price, like you said, has not changed since it launched. But um Occasionally, if you look in the right place at the right time, you'll find like a, a game thrown in for free 
were like a subscription to Nintendo, Nintendo Switch Online tossed in for free. It's not really a huge savings. Like Switch Online, I think, costs about $20 a year. So it's just saving you a step of like when you open it to give it as a gift or get it for yourself. It's one less thing that you have to do. Cameron Faulkner reports on tech deals daily at The Verge. You can subscribe to their newsletter to have those deals go straight to your inbox. Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Speaking of the holidays, normally they're the busiest time to travel, but this year, not so much. The Centers for Disease Control, the governor, and the mayor have all advised against it. However, some Americans are still masking up and hitting the road, despite a surge in coronavirus infections nationwide. Reporter Chris Riata hopped aboard an Amtrak from New York to D.C. to ask travelers why they were making a trek during the pandemic. Travel all but halted in the initial months of the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States, with Amtrak reporting a 95% drop in ridership in April. But with the holidays just around the corner, some Americans are yearning for family time and breaking quarantine to spend Christmas with mom and dad. I understand that the safer thing to do would be to just stay home and not travel, but I haven't seen my parents and uh, now is uh, the best time. David Fagan is one of those travelers. He's heading to Virginia since he hasn't exactly been able to see his parents for a while. And that's not just because of the pandemic. I just got out of jail a month ago. Fagan says he was just released after serving over a year on nonviolent drug offenses, and he misses his mom and dad. Like everyone else on this Northeast regional train, his choice to travel today was deeply personal. Listen, plenty of people like live overseas and don't see their parents for a couple of years at a time or whatever, but um, it's a little different when you have that, um, that taken away from you for a reason like, uh, you know, incarceration. So it makes it a little more pressing to want to see my parents, you know. Not everyone on this train is heading home for the holidays. Steve Wagner is a pilot for a commercial airline who just happens to be commuting to work. Up until uh, a month ago, I didn't know anybody who had uh, gotten sick, and now I know several. U.S. air travel hit a pandemic-era record high over the Thanksgiving holiday, with an estimated 9.4 million Americans traveling through airports during a 10-day window. The TSA is now preparing for even more travelers to be screened in the days ahead. Wagner says people should listen to the CDC guidance, warning against holiday travels. I agree with it. You know, in my case, I don't have a choice, but uh, and I spend half the month overseas where I see Europe locking down, so. Mask must be worn at all times, covering your nose and your mouth, unless you are eating or drinking. Besides the pilot and the train conductors themselves, almost everyone on this Amtrak train seems to be in their 20s or 30s, with large backpacks and suitcases set for an extended trip home. The exact thing Governor Andrew Cuomo has been warning against in his press conferences leading up to the holidays. Let's say the holiday season only increases at 20%, which is the low end of what the experts suggest. So that holiday season, the increase in activity only increases the current rate by 20%. Look what happens. New York State. Today we have 2.9% positivity, we go to 12% positivity. In a phone call ahead of the holiday season, Dr. Fauci predicted young people would be the ones taking unnecessary risks like traveling 
which will ultimately lead to countless deaths just before a vaccine is available for mass distribution. They think they're invulnerable because they see, well, you know what the hell, most people my age, maybe if I'm a young person, who get infected don't have any serious consequences, so who cares? What they're doing is that they're, they're neglecting their societal responsibility because by getting infected, even though they themselves may not get seriously ill, what they're inadvertently, and I guess I could say innocently doing, is that they're propagating the outbreak. The thing is, everyone on this train knows they're violating the CDC guidelines. Nothing was going to stop them from seeing their families for Christmas. Not even a pandemic. I, I realize I'm, I'm bending the rules here, but uh, yeah, I hope uh, I hope it doesn't amount to anything. I mean, my, my worry, you know, I'm fairly young and healthy, but like my worry is that I'd bring something home to my parents. States across the country are now reporting soaring positivity rates, which experts have linked back to holiday travels. For Columbia Journalism, I'm Chris Riata. COVID-19 has been an enormous barrier for service workers across the country. One demographic that's flown under the radar is New York City's doormen. While wealthy residents are fleeing the pandemic hotspots, doormen remain on the front lines, keeping their communities secure. Reporter Tori Lutz checks in to see how some of them are doing. Doormen are the guardians of their buildings. They see what's happening outside, and they don't let strangers in unannounced. This year, residents of apartment communities like Trafalgar House on the Upper East Side cherish them as a part of feeling safe and secure in their homes. It just provides kind of just an image of safety, and they provide us with that security of having our packages delivered to them. They know us, they know our names. It's just very important in feeling like part of the city. Dormen are the heart of New York City's residential communities. That means that they're also among the first to be exposed to COVID-19, and they don't have the option to work from home. A doorman at Trafalgar House named Richard Ortiz got the virus at the start of the pandemic in March. Yeah, everything has changed due to COVID. Um, I got it. I had to stay out from the building for um, almost six weeks. Ortiz wasn't alone. By the end of May, over 200 residential workers in New York City had contracted COVID-19. 39 of them died. That's a higher death rate than the police officers who also suffer from the virus. This is why Ortiz worries about his health. Still, you know, because uh, you don't know where you're coming in and you don't know if any people in the building have the uh, COVID and then you, you're not sure whether you can catch it again or not. There is a great deal of uncertainty regarding statistics since then. This is because organizations like the 32BJ Union for Service Workers like Doorman are scrambling to handle members' concerns and do not have the resources to keep track of infection rates and statistics, according to Regional Communications Manager Carolina Gonzalez. You know, we're not, we don't keep figures on who got sick. I mean, that, 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 you know, we were trying to keep our members with health insurance and for the unfortunate families of members who died, try to get them whatever benefits they had, you know, access to. So trying to keep stats on who's sick is not really the best use of human resources. Aside from the obvious fears surrounding such risk and uncertainty, there are a lot of changes to protocols required of the doormen. Head of 32BJ's residential division, Kevin Stavris, explains. 
doorman always did, you know, their work in the lobby. They've done the, the, the cleaning, the packages, the door. Now there's a lot more wiping down of the door, the glass, the handles, the elevator buttons, the lobby area, a whole lot of protocols I wanted to place in the building. That means a large part of Dorman's day-to-day work, interacting with residents, has changed. That's the hardest part for Manuel Teixeira, or Manny, as the people at Trafalgar House know him. Sometimes it hurts a little bit, but you know, it's life and you have to look at it and just hope and pray that this will be over. Teixeira is New York City's longest serving doorman. He served 56 years at the same building. Ask him why he stuck around so long. The people who took to me from the start, they are very nice. I tried to retire one time for five months and I couldn't, I had to come back. His love for his residents is so strong that not even a pandemic could hold him back from working. And it's a love that's felt both ways. Back to Corbishley, doormen are more than the people who take care of packages or open doors. They were kind of a friendly face in the middle of nothing. You know, you weren't seeing friendly faces. Seeing Manny on my way out the door really just boosts my mood for the rest of the day. The pandemic isn't over yet, but New York City doormen remain on the front lines. This additional risk has been denied hazard pay in the HEROES Act, making their continued service a true sacrifice. Tori Letts, Columbia Radio News. Stay with us after the break. You're listening to Columbia Radio News. I'm Leanne Herder. And I'm Ilika Mahajan. Coming up, we hear how one city is helping small businesses thrive during the pandemic. Then, after an artificial intelligence researcher was fired from Google, we talk about the ramifications. First, here's what's happening across the country. For Columbia Radio News in Irvine, California, I'm Michelle Quinn. The FDA gave emergency approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccination yesterday making it the first COVID-19 vaccine authorized for widespread use in the United States. Around 3 million doses will start shipping today. They will go to healthcare workers and nursing home residents first. Federal officials estimate that 20 million Americans will receive their first dose by the end of the month, if the FDA approves a second vaccine made by Moderna. The Trump administration announced yesterday that it will be buying another 100 million doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. This news follows a record number of deaths related to the virus this week. Over 3,000 Americans died on Wednesday alone. This year is now the deadliest for federal executions since the 1920s. On Thursday, the Justice Department executed Brandon Bernard by lethal injection for his role in a 1999 murder when he was 18 years old. Bernard's execution was the ninth carried out by the Trump administration. It ended a 17-year hiatus on capital punishment in July. A tenth execution by the federal government happened yesterday. Alfred Bourgeois was executed for murdering his toddler daughter in 2002. Protests erupted in Washington, D.C. last night after the Supreme Court rejected a Texas lawsuit challenging the 2020 presidential election results. The 
lawsuit was a last-ditch effort to overturn President-elect Joe Biden's victory. Trump has since fired off several tweets, falsely claiming he, quote, won the election in a landslide. The Electoral College is scheduled to meet next week to officially elect Biden as the next U.S. president. We're an extra layer in New York today. It's a little brisk. It's 50 degrees, but drizzly enough to put a little chill in your bones. Tomorrow the high is 60 and partly cloudy. There will be some rain again on Monday, with a heavy snowstorm moving in on Wednesday. Michelle Quinn, Columbia Radio News. The pandemic is disproportionately affecting Black Americans, and not just their health. A study from the New York Fed shows Black businesses are twice as likely to close than small businesses overall. But that's not the story in one New Jersey community. Reporter Precious Asaige Arese visits East Orange, where shopping small is leading to more businesses opening. It was the middle of May, and Jasmine Thomas received a call from her sisters while on her daily walk. They had an idea, starting a business. Two of my sisters called me like, hey, we got an idea for a beauty supply store. That's right. The plans to open up Dazzle Dash Beauty Supply kicked off right in the thick of quarantine. That didn't stop the three sisters, Jasmine, Dreamy, and Christy, from opening their doors as thousands of businesses across the country began to close theirs. When we decided to do it, everything just started rolling and we kind of just rolled with it. It was like chasing after a moving cart. That was that took off by itself and we chased it down the street. These sisters are natural born hustlers. Though the eldest, Christy Hayes, says that this wasn't an easy business venture to undertake. It was scary, as you can imagine. While we were talking and discussing and trying to find accounts and this, that, and the third, and obviously, you know, looking at what was going on around us, I actually saw the Madam C.J. Walker story. And I was just like, well, the Spanish flu was around when she was, you know, starting up. So I, I kind of looked at it like um, major things get done during times like this. So I thought, you know, just like we all did, well, possibly, you know, that could be us. The odds were stacked against them. Between February and April of this year, Black-owned businesses fell by 41%. Businesses in states that reopened earlier showed some pickup in May and June. But the trend is starting to reverse as COVID-19 cases have begun to rise again. But they have an advantage. East Orange has long been an incubator of small businesses. East Orange actually has thrived on small businesses for so long. So it's been a part of the fabric of the community. Councilwoman Brittany Claybrooks sits on the Policy, Planning, and Development Committee that works to assist businesses as they look to grow in the city. She says they have large chains like ShopRite and Walgreens. But for the most part, what we find is that our um, smaller restaurants and our smaller natural stores and beauty supply stores, those have carried East Orange for so long before we got our major anchor stores. Dreamy Thomas, along with her sisters, knew that if you want to open up a business in East Orange, there's only one person to see. Mark Cheatham, very supportive, pushed it, yeah. Oh my God, he was pushing, pushing. He helped out so much. My name is Mark Cheatham. I work in the planning department for the city of East Orange. And he sees firsthand the difficulties of being an entrepreneur. I have a couple of businesses opening up on Main Street. Uh, they have to pay for the lease, the deposit, all that good stuff. They've got to outfit the space. If it's a restaurant, we've got to put in all kinds of equipment and, and, and furnishings, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to pay for permits. We've got to, yeah, there's a lot of outlay before you opened your door. And it may take 10 months 
in that process that you're not taking anything in. So these, so it's challenging for a small business. Dazzle Dash is just one of the four businesses to open in East Orange in the last several months. Triple Double Smoothie Bar, Pure Roots Natural and Wellness Shop, and Mama Nan Streets all opened during the pandemic. Councilwoman Claybrook says it may help that two of them are located in one of the several strip malls. I've also found that strip malls are less likely to fail than larger malls. So what we'll see is for East Orange, a place like East Orange, we don't see any shortage of businesses being visited still. In fact, it may increase because people don't want to go to larger malls. People may not want to go out to another city. They'd rather stay contained right around home so they can go back and quarantine. But the most important reason why businesses that open in East Orange tend to do well is because of the support from residents. One of the sisters, Dreamy Thomas, felt that support during the Dazzle Dash grand opening. The city of East Orange showed up for our grand opening. I must say, they came out, they showed up. We're minority, we're black, we're women. They just thought it was like, like awesome. So they really supported the movement. I mean, like it was, they pushed, it, hard. They pushed hard for it. While minority businesses all over the country still struggle to maintain, Dazzle Dash can stand proud as one of the few businesses that made it through the pandemic because of a community that chooses to support its own. Precious Osagirese, Columbia Radio News. Last week, prominent artificial intelligence ethicist and researcher, Dr. Timnit Jebru, was fired from Google. Her controversial dismissal was in part due to a dispute over the potential publication of an AI ethics paper she co-authored. The news sparked conversations on social media and throughout the technology community. Karen Howe, MIT Technology Review's AI reporter, has been following Dr. Jebru's departure and joins us now to talk about why the field of AI ethics is so important to begin with. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us today. So let's just launch right into it. First, some background. What is Dr. Timnit Jebru known for, and why has her dismissal from Google been so controversial? Timnit was, um, she is like one of the one of like the most influential researchers within the AI ethics space. Um, she's known primarily for a paper that was published in 2018, which she co-authored with Joy Balamrini, another really big name in AI research, where they found that um, facial recognition is discriminatory against black women. Um, it performs really well with white men, but performs very poorly with black women. And at the time, um, they were auditing actual, like real commercial facial recognition systems that tech companies were sell selling to um, law enforcement as like, this is an extremely accurate product. Um, and that kind of like launched a whole wave of additional research into the phenomenon of AI bias in general and um, led a lot of civil rights activists to rally around this and ultimately um, culminated in Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM either banning or placing a moratorium on their facial recognition sales to law enforcement this summer um, in 2020. Um, but she's also known for like many, many other foundational papers in this field. Um, and most recently, she was the co-lead of the ethical AI team at Google. And at the time when she was there, I think a lot of people within the AI research community were kind of envious of her team because they seemed to have this like perfect setup where they were um, at this tech giant being well-resourced, but also getting to do work that often called out uh, mainstream AI research practices, which is like pretty rare um, 
And so the the reason why there's been such a huge fallout from her forced exit is um, because it's sort of revealed to people that uh, this like rosier picture of um, her getting to do like this critical research was like not actually the case. So one thing that prompted her, as you say, forced exit was a research paper that she had been writing. You're one of the few people that has actually read it. So can you talk a little bit about what was in that paper? Um, The paper itself was a collaboration between six co-authors, two of whom were not at Google, on the risks of very large language models. And um, large language models being like the AI models that are trained on extremely gargantuan quantities of language data in an effort to understand human language and generate human language. And Google is one of like the um, leading companies in this area. Um, They were like the first, uh, Google researchers were the first in 2017 to develop a technique um, in language, large language models that like has launched in the last three years, this like revolution where we've seen like OpenAI's GPT-3 being able to write like full essays. The paper itself is like criticizing this trajectory that's happened in the last three years, saying that there are a lot of things, um, a lot of like consequences to pursuing this line of research. It lists four of them. Like one is that like these models are extremely computationally expensive and therefore could exacerbate climate change, which has a disproportionate impact on marginalized communities. Um, the second one is kind of about how, like, because these language models are trained on such massive amounts of data, um, we have, like, no idea what's in that data. Um, like, the, the people who, like, collect this data can't wrap their heads around that data. Um, and, like, in addition to that, it's being trained on the Internet, and the Internet has, like, lots of joyous places, but also, like, lots of awful toxic places. <laughs> um, and when you need just lots of data, um, you kind of end up degrading the quality of what you're willing to accept as data. And then you end up capturing all of like the racist, racist, sexist, abusive language in that and then teaching these models that like that is normal language. Yeah, you touched on this a little bit in this recap, but just to kind of drive it back home to, you know, normal people, the field of ethical artificial intelligence sounds kind of like a very intimidating field. Why should average people care about what's happening in this field? I think going back to the paper that Tanit co-authored, um, that ultimately led to all of these companies, tech giants suspending their sale of facial recognition, like that kind of shows like the impact that a field like this can have. Like, like facial recognition is a technology that's like proliferating extremely rapidly um, at a speed that like is really hard to stop. And um, that can infringe on, you know, everyday people's privacy and can also particularly, um, end up over-surveilling communities that, whether they're immigrant communities or black and brown communities um, or children, um, like vulnerable populations. And um, this like particular field, like the work that they do enables journalists, activists, policymakers to understand these consequences better um, and actually react to that. Um, And it also helps 
like technologists and researchers themselves understand the technology that they're building better so that they can then go back to the drawing board and create better technologies that don't have these harmful impacts. Yeah, that was beautifully said. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Our executive producer was Chris Riata. Leading production was senior producer Precious Osage Arese. Senior editor Taylor Jung worked on our script. Our associate producers were Tori Lutz and Michelle Quinn. And a big thanks to our instructor Jay Vanesco and Christian Schwab for overseeing the podcast. I'm Leanne Herter. And I'm Ilika Mahajan. From everyone at Columbia Radio News, thanks for listening.